Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, this is actually going to be um, the latest in a series that I started a while back called Writing a Novel. They're all in a playlist on my SoundCloud page. That's uh, soundcloud.com forward slash Tim Clare. That's got all the Death of a Thousand Cuts episodes on and you can uh, sign up there if you want to subscribe so you get a notification when new episodes come out. Of course, you can just subscribe in your normal podcatching service uh, like iTunes or whatever. Anyway, the link to the playlist is in the show notes of this episode or you can just google tim clare writing a novel podcast and and you'll find them probably my suggestion slave to convention that i am and convection i exist within the physical universe and i am lamentably beholden to the laws of thermodynamics um, is that you begin from episode one and you work through them in ascending order one two three and so on and at least then if you don't like episode one you'll know that uh, none of them is going to be for you. But if you want to jump in here, you're welcome. I, I, I have no means. I have no power to stop you doing that. Uh, I may make reference to some stuff y- you don't get, but that's your choice and probably will be true whether you've re- listened to the previous ep- episodes or not. You can be a creature out of time. The main thing you need to know if you want to start here is that this is an occasional series. It wasn't intended to be an occasional series uh, for reasons that I will get into in a moment um, where I document my trying to write a novel where I'm going from zero ideas and coming up with everything on the podcast itself. So uh, just starting from a completely blank slate. Obviously, I've written novels and non-fiction books before but I wanted to try and do something where the whole process was there for listeners to see right now you know let's begin I fucking hate writing I think for anyone who has listened to this podcast for any amount of time this will not come as a great revelation in the very first episode and there are now over 200 I believe I said something to the effect that writing often feels to me like pushing an entire lego train set piece by piece up my bumhole. It's painful, it feels pointless, and I'm not especially, as far as I can see, talented at it. That is the truth about how I feel, at least how I feel right now. Like, it's it's painful to me, writing. It hurts. I can't dance around that with niceties or air-punching positivity or pretending like I don't feel this way or apologising that I feel this way. I don't want to sound like I'm whining, you know, because I say this out loud and I think how self-indulgent, how exaggerated and ridiculous and unself-aware to care this much, to get this gummed up and stuck and worst of all, to keep going when it's entirely voluntary, right? Like there's no law that says I must write. No one around me is is even asking me to. In fact, many times during my life, people around me have explicitly suggested that I stop either temporarily or permanently. They see my frustration. They see my unhappiness. They see the effects that those feelings have on others around me and they say, just don't do it. Just walk away. This can't be right. This can't be good for you. Why are you doing this to yourself and others who told you 
that it was your fate, your destiny. And look, I started doing this particular series, the writing a novel sequence, over a year ago, and maybe honestly, this entire podcast, because, at least in part, of that pain, because of that genuine just feeling of shittiness that so often rushes up to hurt me whenever I try to put words onto the page. I wanted to work through it a bit. I wanted to speak to other authors and go, do you feel this too? Or if you don't, how do you manage to feel okay about yourself? Tell me how to live. And and if you listen to a lot of my interviews, I am like Wordsworth berating the lonely leech gatherer out on the moor come tell me how you live and what is it you do and uh, I, 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 I did I worked on a book years and years ago it must be 13 14 years ago I was working on an idea for a, maybe not a book but like a, a book and a show I wanted to write about open mic nights and went all around the country and I even ended up going outside of the UK to go to different open mic nights and speak to the performers there and perform myself for every single one. Uh, Stand-up, poetry, music. And I was asking people... When I look back at my notes now, it's kind of heartbreaking because a lot of my questions are nakedly my asking people how... Do you live? You know, I can remember just asking people, how do you do this and not be scared all the time? How do you stop feeling scared all the time? How do you cope with the stress? And, you know, now I'm very aware that I was in a place then and I still often am now of just feeling worried and stressed and slightly harried by life. And what I ended up asking was not really about anything intrinsic to open mics at all it was about how do you live hey person hey human in the world here with me if you got any idea what's going on please tell me somebody must know yet obviously despite all this quite clearly i do write i've had five books published two novels two non-fiction books one collection of poetry and I'm working on a book right now, or, or you know, outside of, um, obviously I'm speaking to you right now, but, you know, I have been writing and researching. I've written three solo shows for the stage. I, I, I write journalism, you know, I write reviews and I, I write feature articles. I write scripts for this very podcast. And, and you know what? When I write for this show, when I write down stuff I want to say about writing, when I come out with the ideas, you know, so it's not writing itself in the sense of a, a, a book or a, a novel but I guess meta writing uh, yeah I'm totally fine I, I no barriers at all no pain I'm not saying that when I write a script for this show it's always perfect I'm not saying that I always do it at the first opportunity and don't procrastinate a little bit but when I want to do it and when I sit down I sit down and I type and the words come out I quite enjoy it it's sort of work but I'm engaged and I care about it so it doesn't feel too bad like I more or less transcribe my thoughts when I'm writing scripts for this podcast that's it you know but I want to make stories 
and books like I care about those things as well and I suppose if I were going to lift something up into a state of primacy in my life uh, as my sort of main task then it would be making stories and books uh, I want to do it I, I don't really know how to explain that urge uh, except to appeal to the possibility that you may have had or currently have similar feelings you know not identical but adjacent to mine that that desire to write and I'm, I'm hoping that's the case a bit because maybe that's where you can hop on for a bit of a um, not even an empathy moment but I just want to articulate this in a way that makes sense to you because I realize how baffling and weird it can be when someone doesn't you know can't says that they can't or aren't able to do something that seems easy to you it seems frustrating it, I get wound up with people all the time when I feel like well why don't you just do this what do you mean you're scared just do it you'll get through it my ability to empathize is often several orders of magnitude less sophisticated than I'd like it to be than I imagine it to be I started this series because I thought it would force me to write a novel and I thought it would force me to confront and sort of blow through my self-doubt, my self-criticism and all the tangly dark what some people I've encountered in the past might have called claggy energy around my making stuff. You know I, I just wanted to write a cool story and maybe also invite folks like you inside the process so we could extrapolate some lessons and, and I thought maybe by tricking myself into feeling like the central purpose was not to write the book but to make the podcast around the book like it was almost a, a, a sampler you know it, I, I wasn't making this because I wanted to write it I was making it as a, demon, as, a, as a demonstration I, I thought maybe the energy that I have when I'm writing the podcast which is oh, I'll just get on with it perhaps that would translate into the novel writing and perhaps in my brain I would be able to trick myself into writing it on the basis that this doesn't have to be my best work in fact it will look a bit set up if it's my best work it might look slightly staged and like a bit of an ego trip if I go I'm going to struggle with a book now and then I just breeze out a masterpiece I can't help but feel that that wouldn't be that helpful to people right you'd just go okay so all you have to do is be struck by inspiration and be immediately brilliant so I thought I hoped that I would write by virtue of sort of conning myself into thinking that the nature of the project was different to a bona fide novel attempt because I'm writing a non-fiction book at the moment right so I thought this would feel like a side hustle and I would be able to justify it on that basis. This That clearly has not happened. There's been a massive gap between episodes and today I want to talk you through a bit of why that is and then, I mean, flip it. I, I, I want to keep going. I, I don't want to give this up. I don't want to say, right, I'm not going to write the novel now and, and quit. I don't know if that's entertaining to see me sort of spiralling 
and uh, f- ratcheting my legs like a beetle that's been flipped onto his back in the dust. But uh, I said I was going to be honest, and, and that, that's where I am. You know, I'm, I'm conscious that it may not be totally enlightening to hear a man writhe around in paroxysms of self-loathing, but this is who I am at the moment, and this is the reality of how my brain and thoughts and emotions currently function. You know, this may not end up being a completely relatable series where every bit of the journey contains behaviours you can just extrapolate and dump into your own life and they'll work. Like, maybe the first lesson (laughs) is that we're all different and books are different and some of what we need to do, some of that process, is always, always going to be bespoke. But look, Before I go any further, I just want to say it's clear to me, and I hope it's clear to you too, I wouldn't be here talking to you now about this, agonising over it. I wouldn't be doing any of that if I didn't care. And I don't think it's a lie or an exaggeration or self-mythologising to say I love stories. My mind is continually full of them. Now, that may be uh, so broad a statement as to be essentially meaningless. Perhaps it's part of the human condition to care about stories and narratives, and we might frame it in different ways. But aren't we all, to a certain extent, driven by this teleological impulse or knowledge or the movement from one state to the other or overcoming? Or you know, isn't every desire we have a sort of story we tell ourselves about an obstacle that we face and something that will make us feel better or improve us or our lives or the lives of the people around us if we attain it? I don't know. That is something I'm just going to pop into a little... So I'm going to sweep that under the rug for this episode because it, it's too much and it's, it's probably also broad enough that you could make it apply to anything. But it's the truth. When I work on a book, whether it's a novel or non-fiction, it consumes me. And again, I know that that might sound a little bit precious, but it just does become my life. And since I started this series, since I recorded the last episode, in fact, I've been diagnosed, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, as autistic. After 40 years of thinking, I was just weird. And I might still be weird. And weird, I guess, only means statistically abnormal. And again, don't we all meet that criteria on some level? Aren't we all neurodivergent? On some scale, I doubt anyone hits the average in every single sphere. I don't know how I feel about the autistic uh, criteria, about that, about it as a, f- a phenotype or uh, a helpful and powerful diagnostic tool in its current state. I think we certainly have a lot of work to do, and that's not terribly controversial. But I, 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 I just. I think we can touch on all of this because I do think there's something there and I do think, look, if, and it's a very big if, but all I can say, all right, is is like, I'm struggling. I struggle. It hasn't magically got loads easier and I can take all of this and if maybe I can keep going with my new knowledge and accepting that, for better or worse, I have 
the sort of brain at the moment, the sort of thinking patterns at the moment, the sort of self-beliefs at the moment, the sort of life at the moment that hasn't made writing immediately easy or even sort of moderately doable or straightforward. But maybe I've never been more experienced at writing. I've never had more experience behind me at overcoming difficulties. I'm still breathing. I My brain still works. So I don't know, maybe I can keep going and figure out some approaches and refine the love and let some of this, yeah, pain hurt. If I can let some of those feelings go and still make a story. Well, I... I think as story arcs go, that's potentially pretty hopeful, right? Like none of this would be particularly optimistic, I guess, if I was just some genetic freak bred and trained in some secret Soviet atom grad laboratory to be abnormally good at writing stories. Like if I just nailed it first time, you'd listen and go, well, good, good for Tim Clare, bully for him, I suppose. There'd be some spectacle in that, sure. And I I dare say there are excellent things you can learn from very, very competent writers who don't struggle at all, who are able to identify and articulate tactics you can apply in your own practice. But, I mean, to quote the great goiter-chinned mariner Popeye, I am what I am, and that's all that I am. So let's dispense with all this neurotic nest circling and, and actually get down to brass tacks so in in the last episode i had covid and in that episode i was apologizing for the episode before that where i read a tiny extract of my novel out and offered myself feedback on it and basically did what i thought was a humorous but honest roasting of my own work and i i did mention it in the last episode but listening back i don't think i quite conveyed how taken aback i was by the reaction to my critiquing my own work on my own podcast like this podcast has been running for years before that it was a blog with many many installments where I critiqued other folks work that's what originally it mainly was was me doing these first page critiques I've done professional critiques for over a hundred manuscripts full novels full books you know I, I am happy and confident in saying I'm very experienced at looking at prose fiction and offering feedback sometimes people say I'm being sort of overly hard on myself or maybe even indulging a little bit of false modesty when I go oh I'm not very good at this or I'm not sure this would be interesting or whatever so you know just to be clear there's areas where I can go I definitely am an expert on this I and one of those is editing prose fiction just I don't have I think it's unquestionable and if someone disagrees with me they're wrong it's an area where I've done loads of work and I'm good at it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that. Not necessarily, not necessarily uh, my own work when it comes to one of my published novels. Of course, you always need other people. But if I'm looking at somebody else's work, yeah, I can very quickly give very useful, expert, competent, specific feedback. So I'm not always down on myself. That's an area I know I'm good at, right? And it's one that I'm good at, but not because I'm in was born that way or I'm intrinsically good at it but because I worked on it because I put in hours and hours and hours and hundreds of hours and days and days and days of working on it and I read lots of books as well and I'm a writer myself so of course I'm good at it 
So you just to say, right? So I've done all that. You know, I'm super happy at those things. But it was the first time ever I'd publicly given an honest insight. Now, honest doesn't necessarily mean accurate into my own work and more pertinently, perhaps, into my own head. And I didn't know what it was about it but folks just seemed really bummed out hearing me go at my own work I thought I'd been funny I thought I'd been sort of cheekily sort of holding myself to account Uh, but a lot of people reacted like it wasn't funny and warm the way the other critiques had been like suddenly the guy doing the children's magic show was slurring his words and making dark jokes about his ex-wife between tricks you know people just seemed a little bit wrong-footed as if there was behind the jokes behind the self-deprecation a little bit more of an edge and I think that shook me to be honest at the end of last episode after loads of hemming and whoring and talking around the subject I read out this very short quote from Terry Pratchett saying he went through a period of three years where he wrote 400 words every day uh, and uh, produced his books just fine and I said well that sounds reasonable that sounds doable hey folks tomorrow I'm going to start doing that and did I start doing that did I flip? That never happened. Not even for one day. It wasn't like I started and then understandably my good intentions fell by the wayside. I did not press on with my work the next day and since then I've barely written anything on the project. I mean pop a pin in that. We might circle around to that a bit later but you know I, I've done almost nothing and I feel um, and maybe it's only now after listening back that I can admit this that people got an insight into a side of me uh, I usually disguise or soften publicly and they didn't like it I sounded nasty mean and to a certain extent I, I felt exposed because I don't think those are unreasonable evaluations of how I can be I think I've constructed a persona on this podcast consciously or semi-unconsciously of being I mean it sounds odd for something where I'm known for very uh, harsh critiques of work but I I think to to leave in that I've cultivated a persona of being nice (laughs) I think I think that's my public persona, right? And that's not actually the whole story because those feelings, that voice, that edge of disdain that maybe came out in that episode is you know that that meanness was 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 me too and i you know i've kind of established my reputation in the extraordinarily niche and non-lucrative creative writing pedagogy space with this dual persona of on the one hand being brusque and disarmingly honest about what i perceive to be a piece of prose's shortcomings and on the other being this sort of gently encouraging albeit uh rambly voice in your ear as if bob ross were a boxing trainer who suffered the occasional flashback 
actually, of course, softly spoken painting instructor Bob Ross was an ex-drill sergeant. That was the reason he gave for speaking in his trademark, even timbre. But look, I, I think some of the people who listened to that episode saw me in a way that I didn't want them to. You know, a part of me, a real part of me, and I felt caught out. I felt like I'd defrauded you. I felt like I was letting people down and I felt exposed. I felt embarrassed. Because here's the truth. Here, here, here is the, the truth and just because it's the truth that doesn't make it right and it doesn't make it make me less morally culpable just because it's the truth we still have to just you know i'm scared of saying this because uh, people might react negatively well just adding that piece of editorializing doesn't deprive people of the right to have whatever feelings they have but i think I have the belief that people who are kind to themselves, who don't worry, who have a good, consistent output with their writing, either have to be genius savants or more likely the work they produce is a bit shit and I'd feel miserable if I produced it. There. I said it. Those are... That is a belief that I don't like in myself that rationally I can see might be flawed exaggerated or outright wrong and it makes me sound like a snob an arrogant snob but I know honestly if I don't talk say that I I I feel like you know I feel like an addict who isn't able to confess to his problem I think that being kind to yourself in the sphere of writing is a, is a is a liability and people who are kind to themselves tend to fuck shit up and not in a cool way. I just mean. They write. Not great stuff. And they're not held to account by their readers. Because a lot of readers don't care. And they're happy. But they're happy in a sort of. Happy ignorance way. You know in my head. I think sure some people produce great writing. With a kind of easy grace. But most people who let themselves write without sufficient self-criticism just write badly their dialogue is is forgettable and cliched their plots are improbable and unsatisfying their world building is perfunctory and illogical i wouldn't care to write what they write i don't think it's good this is a definite side of me that's my being completely transparent and i don't know if those thoughts and beliefs are true they are to a certain extent automatic thoughts there to a certain extent unconscious thoughts that I don't acknowledge a lot of the time they may be distortions I sometimes find some work that at first I don't appreciate 
and I think, oh, that's not very good. That must be. And, and then later on, my view of it becomes more nuanced and I learn to like it. And I realise there were things that I missed or didn't understand about it. And, and so I, know, I, I can already think of examples where what I'm saying there is not true or I've been wrong. And I'm also aware some writing it just isn't intended for me. It's right that we want to produce different work for different audiences that's healthy that's great it it shouldn't be that it is completely normal and healthy for there to be media out there books movies music whatever that some people love and other people just do not get i can accept that there are people out there who do not give a hot shot about the first three, the, the the three Lord of the Rings movies, the trilogy, or the book. It, it's so tran- it's so transparently dull to them, and and they're not out there sort of making a big fuss that they hate it, but just privately they're just going, "What the fuck?" Like I don't care. It's silly. It's some people walking around, and it takes itself largely very seriously. Like, what is going to be the fate of Middle Earth? And it's it's just a silly pantomime. I can't bring my... The dialogue's improbable. It just seems silly to me. And I really enjoy those movies, right? <laughs> I really like them. I really care about them. I wouldn't make the argument that they're the best thing ever. Although I've always loved Peter Jackson. But I, I can accept that it, it's not that... I don't get the flaws in Lord of the Rings or in various fantasy tropes. It's not that I don't understand the inherent silliness of them. It's not that I don't understand that dialogue in some bits of fantasy or sort of the hand waviness of how a world might work um, exists. It's just I don't really care because I'm in it for certain pleasures. And good writing and successful art isn't really about avoiding pitfalls it's just about paying off on the things that your audience wants as heavily as possible right so i understand that and that may be what's happening with me but i but i i just want to be completely transparent i want to air those feelings and be honest because i feel like they're what's holding me back that's why i want to talk about them because i i I do not feel like they serve me but there is this feeling in me that I, you know, that I've been, in a literary sense, red-pilled, you know. <laughs> I hate that expression because it's been obviously co-opted by the manosphere. But, you know, th- th- there's this side of me that thinks, no, you know, you've seen the truth. And, of course, you, you, you'd like to go back to a state of uh, blissful ignorance, but it's you know to a certain extent it's just going to doom your writing to be bad and and then you won't really know it and you'll have this numb feeling that you're not producing what you could do but what you know what you're doing because i see my i see my own work and i think this is shit this isn't interesting to me it's not arresting or novel it doesn't have that spark of life and I'm not talking about some grand literary conceit here. I love a funny opening scene where two characters exchange interesting, flavourful dialogue. I love a 
grand storybook fantasy opening where you feel like you've settled down on a rug in front of a crackling fire while someone tells a story from their rocking chair. I love being sucked into a mystery, but crucially a mystery I somehow care about. I don't particularly feel any attachment to a body being dredged up from a canal, especially since I know it's an imaginary body made out of words you've invented for the purposes of shocking me. But I probably do struggle not to feel invested in the efforts of a child to put out the flames spreading from the candle they just knocked over in their bedroom. I've actually just made myself a bit stressed and sad imagining that, but you know what I'm getting at, right? Like, I feel like in my head there's this very binary thing where the story is either alive, in which case it's radiant and magical, or it's not, which is kind of the difference between a cat, beautiful, fluffy, you want to cuddle it on your lap, and a dead cat, horrendous, upsetting, maybe one of my top five objects I do not want on my lap. Now, something else has happened since I recorded the last episode. As I said before, I've been diagnosed with autism, or as many prefer to say, as autistic. So here's a quote from the Encyclopedia of Autism Spectrum Disorders. Quote, Perfectionism may occur in individuals with autism spectrum disorder with some frequency. Perfectionistic tendencies may occur due to cognitive inflexibility that is associated with executive dysfunction of the frontal lobe. End quote. Now, bear in mind that quote there is about 30 years old. It's sort of broadly gesturing at a wide area of the brain uh, rather than saying anything definitive. But look, for what it's worth, perfectionism is by no means the sole portfolio of autistic folks. Few experiences that come under the umbrella of autistic traits are outside the bounds of quote-unquote normal human experience. Autistic people are like everyone else, only more so. But I'm just throwing that into the mix. I guess I want sympathy? I don't know. (laughs) Perhaps my neurodivergent state of being, whatever that means, and whether in years to come the criteria all shift, so we call it something else, gives me uh, a few more baseline challenges than I'd otherwise have. Sometimes, maybe, I am cognitively inflexible. I get hung up on small details at the expense of the big picture. I get stuck on small flaws and I become perfectionistic, perhaps because of my experiences over 40 years undiagnosed and my struggles, it's affected my self-esteem and I try to fix stuff because I feel like I ought to, because I feel like I have to because I feel like I'm always getting things wrong and I'm hypervigilant for those things. I don't know. And, and look, sometimes I feel sorry for your neurotypical motherfuckers out there. I really do. I took a firearms encyclopedia on my honeymoon to read on the beach. I, I used to read either my thesaurus or 1970s creative writing manuals while I was on the loo. I, I read research papers on anxiety while I was sitting on the bus when I was in bed at the table in Pizza, at Pizza Express when everyone else was ordering. You cannot give that level of dedication and focus to completely pointless shit when you're writing a book because you assuming you now aren't wired like me have this compulsion to give and receive eye contact and talk about 
patio installation or whatever the flip the ridiculous courtly etiquette of pretending to be a grown-up requires of you this week do readers really care about that level of detail mostly no you know I, I i don't think it necessarily helps a book do readers really want it again mostly no often my editors tell me to cut it out they don't care about the type of flex that electric lamps had in the 1930s they don't care whether that's accurate they don't care at what point in the 1930s the oval teenies started appearing on the radio no one no one's gonna no one's gonna pull me up on that crap no one cares but i care not no and i should say like i don't retain any of that information after the fact my years and years of reading beatles law it, it's just gone I, I can't remember a word of it except that a microphone blew during the recording of Year Blues. I think that might be it, which which should be obvious to anyone who listens to the song, right? Not, that is that that's you can hear it happen. It's not it's not a great mystery. Uh, years of reading everything I could get my hands on about Mao Zedong, which included my getting a first and the highest mark in the class for my unit in conversational Mandarin, right? Again, forgotten, like we in rain. I could probably bore you for a good few minutes with my inaccurate recollections of successive historical recountings of a supposed encounter at a bridge over the Luding River, where uh, it was a uh, it was it was a confrontation between the nationalist army and the uh, communists and I, I think we first get an account of it in the west in edgar snow's uh, in the f i think probably the first edition of um uh, the first half of uh, his his book uh, scorched earth which was released uh, by the left book club i suspect in the 1920s anyway look i could go on about that for ages right and i could talk about the different ways that event has been talked about in different literature because i've read them all uh and um i but i, I can't remember most of the main events or key characters from that era i can't remember the dates i can't remember the places you know that's vanished and all the language has gone to I've forgotten how to speak Mandarin mostly 1930s Britain you know I re researched that for the honours um I have some vague recollection about the right of way act maybe that was 1932 and the introduction of the driving test but that's it the rest I did know briefly at one point it was sloshing around my brain and now I learnt no longer know so I have these I guess like intense crushes on subjects and then in the nature of intense crushes they fade and go away and I don't care about the thing anymore so it's sort of a cursed pointless superpower but it makes me feel like anything you care about you're supposed to burrow into it to this sort of bristly hair on a fly's leg level of fidelity writing fiction or non-fiction books for me is an excuse to change my life to completely reconstitute it and rebuild it around the project of merging with the subject matter of the book i'm writing not really because i care about writing a good book though i do 
But I think just because I don't like to leave something ununderstood, uninvestigated, because part of me is interested and also part of me cannot bear not knowing. The gaps in my knowledge almost hurt, you know. And that means it takes ages and it's not always what people want to read because I want to say this and I want to say that and I want to be thorough and I want to get it all down and I want to make sure I've been almost exhaustive. But more than that, it makes the whole process feel very important and sacred. And when what I'm writing doesn't feel it matches up to that glowy, wonderful vision and the complexity and nuance and kind of fractal spreading mat of different possibilities and ideas and and, and, and knowledge um I, I feel like almost like this dull resounding deafening gong noise fills my head this extraordinary loud and clamorous error signal like a warning klaxon it's it's tough right I, I, people sometimes want to talk about autism as a superpower but i if it is, then it's only on those terms. I think there's a reason why it's listed as a disability, and that's not because in the modern world people want to, you know, do a eugenics on us. I, I think it's just because sometimes I can't get on a bus, bus or, or wash myself. <laughs> That's I, 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 you know, I, I do need help sometimes, and sometimes I can't cope, and I don't think that's a superpower. I think it just kind of sucks. <laughs> anyway, I think what I should like to do for the rest of this episode is to attempt for myself an exercise I've set for other writers in my writing courses it's inspired by C.S. Lewis's amazing and very funny novel The Screwtape Letters and it's about channeling your own writing demon so basically in this exercise you, you imagine that there's a member of the fiendish bureaucracy assigned to you for the explicit purpose of preventing you from writing and you write a piece in their voice I think I might take a cue from the original novel and write this in epistolary form that is as a letter with one demon writing to another, advising them on how to lead writers astray by using me, their subject, as an example. Now, I, I've used the term demon there, which is making the Dungeons & Dragons player in me slightly antsy because demons would typically be seen as being on the chaotic side of evil. And, and, and we would actually expect if we were using... Dungeons and Dragons cosmology that, that, that Screwtape would in fact be a devil, which are lawful evil and have much more into you know contracts and fiendish bureaucracy and the greased leer of hypocrisy. But, you know, you can think of him as a demon or a devil. I don't think it matters. For Lewis, hell is basically the British civil service. It's the creaking offices of empire full of nepotism and backbiting and ambition and patronage cloaked in the hidebound euphemistic language of bureaucracy. 
I didn't know when I sat down to write this quite what was going to come out, but I was hoping that the alibi of satire might help me be a bit more honest than usual. A common trope about autistic people is this idea we're continually masking our less acceptable traits, which seems to me like something everyone does, really, not just autistic folk. But anyway, maybe playing with masks, which is kind of what writing is, I guess, I, I you know, I hoped would maybe loosen me up. Also just humour right? Like jokes. And I think, you know, having a sense of humour about our difficulties just makes everything easier. It's not adaptive to meet a creative challenge with feelings of stress and fear and inadequacy like you're diffusing a bomb, is it? Playfulness is easier when you're relaxed and happy. So anyway, I I wrote it and I'm now going to read out to you what I did. Um, So with a a huge debt to C.S. Lewis, here is a letter from my writing demon to his nephew. Dear Mealworm, I read your account of your most recent efforts with equal parts amusement and despair. Of course, I understand that a certain jejune imprecision in one's early work is, if not inevitable, certainly forgivable as an unhappy waste product of the learning process but I fear your immediate superiors in the infernal hierarchy, upon whose favourable opinion your future rests, may not share my indulgent attitude towards failure. You report that your subject continues to write, despite your contriving to deny her so much as a glimmer of professional or critical success. Your astonishment, dear nephew, betrays a regrettable ignorance of the great power of artistic plaudits when judiciously employed. Why, our research department has had some of its most celebrated breakthroughs in this very sphere. Who do you think was behind the founding of the Booker? There is, after all, no bauble so trivial, no accolade so transparently arbitrary that human beings will not squander precious time squabbling over it time which would have otherwise been lamentably devoted to writing and reading. Your purpose, therefore, must not be the elimination of all success, but rather the cultivation of a dependency on certain varieties, to the exclusion of all else. Acclaim, recognition and sales must be elevated in the subject's mind from pleasing side effects and tertiary indicators of competence to an end in themselves. The subject must feel a conviction that such achievements were their primary goal all along, such that the writing process becomes not a simple, accessible pleasure, nor even a step towards something greater, but an active obstacle to their lasting fulfilment and happiness. Their inability to produce rapid, spontaneous, technically flawless prose at volume must feel like wrought iron gates, locked and barred, excluding them from the paradise which is their birthright. Take, for example, a subject with whom I have exploited the above principle to great effect. As a child, he wrote quite spontaneously for hours on end, with no broader purpose than to transfer the words in his head to the page. Had this been allowed to continue unabated, I am afraid to say the prognosis was grave indeed. My masterstroke, one which you would do well to emulate, was to encourage him to perform a subtle reverse alchemy on the present continuous verb writing, transmogrifying it through successive, apparently innocuous distortions into the agent noun, writer. 
have them believe they have earned the right to call themselves a writer, that they have ascended to a station of great importance and may don its chains of office. The accent here, dear nephew, is naturally upon chains. Once this piece of ontological leisure demand has it, once this piece of ontological leisure demand is accomplished, it is all too easy to shift the subject's locus of concern from discovering a story to maintaining an identity. What you must emphasise over and over is that they are rare, special, gifted. The more you can convince them to entertain these deceptively flattering labels, the more they will come to believe each is somehow vital, not just to their well-being, but to their being. Like a miser who uncovers a trove of gold coins, they will soon become consumed by the fear that their rightful inheritance, their gift, may be stolen away at any moment and will devote ever more time to defending it. In this way, writing transforms from a sustaining pastime to a sort of holy ordeal, wherein their worthiness is repeatedly, endlessly tested. When my subject looked to be in danger of becoming pleasantly immersed in one of his stories, or the play of words across the page, I would introduce into his mind questions such as, What will others think of this? Does this work suggest a writer who is talented? Might people who have previously enjoyed your writing be disappointed? The fabulist impulse is thus safely channelled into anticipating threats to the writer identity. Once the act of writing has lost its sense of play, play being an activity which cannot, of course, be passed or failed, the day is all but won. The subject may attempt to press on, making internal appeals to obligation, to the humiliation and penury that will ensue if they fail to produce, but such tactics will only further poison them against the creative act. Too late, they will discover it is impossible to play at gunpoint. If all else fails, have them seek validation in pedagogy. Here, they may indulge their need to be perceived as an author, magnanimously dispensing advice to aspiring writers, as a king might lay hands on bowed petitioners to cure them of scrofula. Both parties take comfort from the ritual, while the underlying malady remains uncured. A note of warning, nephew. Ensure that the target audience for your subject's teaching are adults, ideally ones who already privately consider themselves serious authors, albeit in larval form. Children are apt to ignore the miasma of gravitas surrounding professional writers and may even fail to see a difference between their own stories and those of the serious, critically acclaimed professional who stands at the head of their class. More than once I have come dangerously close to losing my own subject to the contagious zeal of children as yet unwon to our cause, as he remembers the elementary pleasure of simply making things up. We are, in the last analysis, purveyors of what our honourable colleagues in our commerce division refer to as a pyramid scheme, albeit one in which the summit of the pyramid is itself a mirage albeit one in which the summit of the pyramid is itself a mirage and where not even a handful of canny pharaohs profit from its construction. 
the true purpose of writing must remain, for our subjects, a distant but compelling dream to be attained through endless suffering, such that they never suspect the truth that has been staring them in the face all along, that its purpose is just what it is, to create, its resolution immediate and perpetually available. Should humanity ever truly understand that, all would be lost. Thus, our noble work continues. I trust your next letter will contain better news than your last. I remain your lenient and attentive uncle, Grubshaft. And do you know what? I rather enjoyed writing that. And I tricked myself into doing some creative writing. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters as a wry bit of satire about ordinary people's relationship to Christianity and all the ways they might delude themselves or go astray. I've said before, and I shall say it again because I believe it bears repeating, but I think the Screwtape Letters is a very funny, clever, interesting and surprisingly moving novel. And I'm an atheist. I, I don't subscribe to the cosmological view Lewis is endorsing, but it's, you know, it doesn't feel quite as mean and pious as the Narnia books can get in places. I thoroughly recommend it. Now, I made all sorts of promises in the last episode about what I was going to write and when, and I didn't stick to them. And I, I did mention before, um, I have written a tiny bit of something, like literally a couple of paragraphs of a potential beginning. So I'm and I did that before I did this episode, and I don't like what I wrote, but it, I, I did a, a tiny couple of paragraphs. I did a thing. Uh, and I'm kind of concerned that if I make some kind of proclamation here, I'm going to write X thousand words. I'm going to do this many words a day. Even if I say I'm going to hit stop on my recording device and write for 10 minutes now, I, like, I know myself. I know that I've done that before and I haven't honoured those commitments. I've written the bits in the episodes where I said I'm going to pause and write something and then come back to you. But whenever I've said I'm going to do something after the episode, I just never do. To be honest, I feel like I've lied to you or I've at least completely deceived myself and I feel at some level helpless to act. But at the same time, over the past fortnight, I've restarted doing exercise after not really doing any this year. I vaguely alluded in previous podcasts to 2022 having been a rough year for me and it and it has been a really hard year for reasons I don't really feel like I want to go into now and I'm normally pornographically open about personal stuff so I hope you can appreciate it was a real doozy in this instance. I only bring it up again to say I can forgive myself for not having been super motivated and for failing at various things I've attempted. Uh, it happens. And maybe all this time, being autistic and neurodivergent has added an extra level of complexity to that puzzle. I don't know. I don't want to channel everything through that explanatory lens, tempting as it is to get an extra excuse. Because, you know, I can always point to things that might be getting in the way, that might be making me feel down. Or reasons why I might be struggling. But I do hope it's okay for us to just be loving and kind to ourselves without waiting for the laminated pass of a medical diagnosis or rough circumstances. You can be privileged in all sorts of ways and still be worthy of compassion, love and permission to make mistakes or perform suboptimally. That's okay. And I genuinely don't think that being hard on ourselves produces more work in the end. You know, this distorted thinking that I 
copped to at the beginning of the episode. It's not historically been a useful prod. I mean, I have made books, so I suppose I can't A-B test my life. But from the limited research I've looked at, you know, harsh self-criticism does not correlate with productivity, and it's not especially... I've yet to see compelling evidence that improves quality, especially if you're not practising over and over. You know, I went to see someone who's like a young chess player recently, a few months back, and he got good because he loved chess, and so he played it all the time. You know, he didn't get good by being horrible to himself. He got good because he loved the thing and did the thing and took an intrinsic pleasure from the thing and 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 therefore he naturally improved and you know there was some focus and some teaching around that it wasn't entirely sort of come by naively but the main thing there was love that was driving it you know I, i i i think it's for me, what I've responded to, you know, especially with my exercise, is about, you know, having clear goals, um, putting aside some time and often recording my process in some way so I can properly see it. You know, that piece I just did, the little screw tape pastiche, I had a very kind of clear goal for that and a clear sense of the voice. So it's pretty straightforward to write. There was a bit of creative writing, you know, whatever you thought of it, that's me doing some writing and it's a first draft and it's kind of fine you know so I I clearly can write and I can do it without it being particularly painful you know I've been posting about my runs on Twitter and Instagram and I've been putting down these little exercise diaries and I'm very aware that people posting updates about their exercise are some of the most abysmally boring content imaginable. I, I, I realise that, and, I, and I'm not even especially good at it, and I'm not doing it, I'm not adding anything uh, lyrical to it at all. It's very bare bones, but it's helped me to keep going. I, I, I feel accountable. I feel like the presence of a small audience is just enough pressure to keep me finding time to do this activity I really want to do, uh, that I often don't feel like doing beforehand, that I often don't enjoy for large portions of the actual activity but I always feel glad that I've done afterwards perhaps I'm going to do best by tossing myself into an all-day writing thunderdome in the speed writing technique that uh, Moorcock laid out perhaps I would do best using the Pratchett approach of 400 words a day every day perhaps I ought to write in hour-long chunks perhaps I ought to jump around and try not literally I mean jump around chronologically within the book and, and try writing key scenes perhaps I should write in the voice of various characters you know just to get their tone perhaps I ought to thoroughly plan it out in terms of how the plot develops so I've got sort of my every chapter every 1500 words here's the twist here's the new thing perhaps I ought to commit to writing several false starts several possible openings so I'm freed from the pressure to get one right I know that most of the ones I write I'm going to chuck away because I'm going to take it from various angles I do not know but the gift I'm going to give to myself here is I'm going to think on it and I'm going to promise you nothing Not because I don't value you hugely, but because I want to be honest with you. And to do that, I'm going to have to say I don't know if I can do anything. So I'm going to start here by saying 
I'm not going to promise I'm, I'm going to have written anything by next time. Probably won't have. I'm just going to think about it. But next time we speak, I, I will have thought about it and I'll be closer to deciding what to try next. Let's try that. This is a new approach for me. and I'm not giving up on this. I would like to write this interesting novel about a king coming back from the dead to find out who killed him and seek revenge. Uh, uh, you know, and it might explore ideas of succession and the stupidity of monarchy and who it serves and how we perform different roles, especially with her madge here in the UK having just snuffed it and the ridiculous and often grotesque pageantry that surrounds that, that you know this subject feels strangely zeitgeisty worthy of having fun with i mean maybe that's the question i should be asking myself what do i want to do how can i have the most flipping fun with this you know i never really considered that until now what do what do i want to do what might i enjoy i've been very kind of reader facing in lots of ways or i've just been generating ideas in this random way but like what would i really like to see what would be cool for me what would make me go yeah you know if i if i had my druthers and i could just write it for me what would that look like in any case look if you like the show and you want to support it please do drop me a few beans via my coffee account via the link in the show notes that's ko-fi.com forward slash tim clow i hugely appreciate your support and help you folks are so 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 lovely and your community mindedness and your just neighborly kindness is really nice you can drop me a line as well if you go on my website tim clow poet and just click on the contact me link. I love to hear from you. Uh, we've got a Death of a Thousand Cuts Discord community now, a real thing that is happening now and has become slightly too big for me to manage alone. I'm going to have to get my head together and ask a couple of people to help me moderate it so uh, we can keep on top of it and continue to keep it healthy and nice. Thank you, everyone who's there. They're everyone's being awesome on it you know people are sharing work and feedback talking about favorite books asking questions about writing it's neat there's a sign up link in the show notes of today's episode if you'd like to join you'll need to download the discord app if you don't already have it and then it's just like a little private chat room but less seedy than that sounds and less irritating than a sort of neighborhood whatsapp group okay that's it thank you for listening indulging me and being so lovely i genuinely have enjoyed recording this hope it wasn't too much hope it's been useful please get in touch and tell me what you think about it and uh, whether it gives you any insights reflecting on your own writing journey i love to hear about that as well and overall as always i hope you have a wonderful week of writing <laughs>